so much for coming tonight. We're really, or today, it's today. Um, we're so glad that you're here. I'm Amy Antonucci. And let me tell you who else we've got with us here in terms of our crew. John Lovering is also one of the original founders. David Frainer joined us a little later on. He's, he likes to be thought of as our, our young recruit. And Pat Spaulding has also been with us from pretty much the beginning, and you'll get to hear from her today more. So that is um, our main crew, and I'm going to tell you a little more about our show, but we always open with um, an audio clip from the great storyteller Catherine Tucker Windham. She is from the Southern storytelling tradition, and she will really help you understand why we love stories. She's very eloquent about it. So are we ready for that, Stephanie? From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. Daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. So again, that was Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the age of 92 at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Convergence um, about the importance of stories, and she really sums up for us why we're doing this and what we love about story. So the stories that you'll be hearing today, as was Stephanie was explaining, are first-person experience stories. It means that each person that comes out here and shares with you will be bringing you a piece of their life to share. And we do, at True Tales, encourage the development of storytelling skills. We have monthly workshops and other assistance that we give to tellers. There certainly is um, a lot to learn in becoming a better and better storyteller. But 
we have no ranking, we have no judging, this is not at all a competition. We truly believe that everyone is a story, storyteller, that everyone has a story, and that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together as a community. It's a way that people from vastly different backgrounds, places, or experiences find common ground and connect. And that is what it means to be a healthy, vital community. So our monthly shows have a theme, usually, that helps people, mostly is to help people get thinking. What, what, what might I have to tell on that subject? Tonight, sorry, usually we are here at night, and with that close, I keep forgetting. This afternoon, um, our theme is not quite what I expected. All right. And our storytellers coming up are Susan Lang, Kate Braun, Andy Davis, Tom Osberg, Tina Charpentier, and Martha Reed Johnson. Each of these storytellers will be introduced to you by our excellent MC, local artist, and storyteller herself, Pat Spaulding. And let's welcome her up now to get us started with our stories. Come on, Pat. Thanks, Amy. It's very encouraging to see all of you here on this beautiful fall afternoon. Thanks for coming. Fall is a great time to share stories. So this is when we start thinking about fires and gatherings and yeah, bonfires. And um, so you can picture yourself there or here as we begin. We are going to start off with Susan Lang. She is a holistic nurse and founder of the Alliance for Art, Healing, and Adventure in Greenland, New Hampshire, where she conducts workshops that involve <laughs> the shamanic process for inner guidance. An early practitioner of integrative medicine, she has studied the traditional healing practices of South American indigenous healers, Chinese energetics, Japanese Reiki, and Hawaiian medicine. Based on three guiding principles of love, action, and wisdom, Susan assists others in transcending their human suffering to create meaningful heart-centered lives through art, integrative healing, and spiritual travel. Her story is titled, The Whales Will Save Us. Come on up, Susan. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Good? Okay. Um, I can't see anybody. Okay. So I'm Susan Lang, and 15 years ago, I learned a really important lesson, and I had been invited to Maui to give a presentation on my work with shamanic uh, teachers in South America and North America, and, uh, and it was a blend of my work with, with also with at-risk teenagers doing Joseph Campbell's work, which is called The Hero's Journey. And so I, this is my fourth day on Maui, and I'm giving this presentation, and afterwards a gentleman approached me, and we had some conversation, and he had invited me to go sailing the following day. Of course, I said yes, and um, I met with him the following morning in what's called Mahale Bay, and Mahale Bay is between the West Maui Mountains and the East Maui Mountains, the volcano, the Haleakala, and it's a long, sandy beach. And so we arrive, it's a gorgeous day. And so Lee and his girlfriend, Carla, are, we're, I'm joining them on their catamaran. 
and we get on board and we put our life jackets on and we sail out into the bay. And it is absolutely stunning. I don't know if anybody has been to Maui or been to Hawaii. Everything is just stunningly beautiful. And so we're gliding out into the bay and the wind stops and we're just sitting there, easily just sitting there. And I'm looking up at the West Maui Mountains and they are ancient volcanoes and they ripple down like a vertebrae with ribs and they're lush and they're green and they come right down to the ocean. And then you look to the other side and you have the ancient, uh, the Haleakala, this 10,000 foot volcano. And at the top of it, it looks like a moonscape. It's absolutely beautiful. And so we're just easily there. And then in the distance, we can see the water coming at us. It's beginning to churn. And as it's churning, it's getting closer to us. And as it gets closer, we realize it's a wall of water. And it hits us so fast, it flips us over. And as we're going over, I, look, I hit my head on the mast. I can hear Carla screaming. And we come up and we grab onto the pontoons and pull myself up. And I see Lee is already um, yanking as much as he can, and he is barking orders at us to come around, come onto the, the one side of the pontoons, and yank and pull the boat up. And of course, it's too wet, it's too heavy, and we're not strong enough. And there's just no way with the wind and the water that we could right ourselves. So we realize that we have to be saved. And it's very desperate, of course. And so we're turning around. I'm looking around for anything. And in the distance, I can see a really small boat but of course, it's way too far out. It could never see us. And then we're looking back towards the, towards the island, and you can see coming from the harbor, there's a ship coming from the harbor. And it looks like it's coming straight at us. And at this point, it's like, OK, you can relax a little bit. Because the pontoons are busted. We're sinking. We're actually taking on water. And we're getting lower and lower in the water. And of course, it's windy, and it's freezing. And so this, this idea of being rescued is really, So the ship's coming at us, and we see as it's coming towards us, it starts to veer. And we don't realize what's going on, but it starts to veer. And so we take off our shirts. And we start waving our shirts and screaming for help. And we just keep watching and screaming as that ship goes around the corner and disappears right around the West Maui Mountains. So here we are. We're, we're really in dire straits. And it's at that moment that I realize it's like I'm on the most I'm in the most remote place on the planet. A week prior, a uh, husband and wife, expert sailor, had drowned in the same spot. The current, if you catch it right, it will take you to Tahiti, and that's of course if the sharks don't get you first. And I say to myself, Oh my God! So this is how I'm going to die. And I'm looking around, and I. I look up at the Haleakala, and I remember that morning I was at a sunrise ceremony, and it was called Rolling into the Red Line of the Sun. And the, the teaching is that the ancient, the Hawaiians understood that the earth rolled, not the sun. And so this ceremony shows you that. There's a long red line, beautiful. And you can look out to the other islands, you can see all, everything from up there. And in that instant that I'm sitting there and I'm looking up, remembering that, I had a wave of peace come over me. And it, it descended upon me, and it went through my body. And as it's settling through my body, out of my mouth come these words. That's OK. The whales will save us. I see them first. 
I do. I see them. There's, there's, a, there's two, actually. They're coming at me, us, <laughs> and one's a little smaller than the other, and they get closer, and they get so close, they start circling us. And it's a mother and a baby, and it's a, and a calf. So they're going around us, and they're going under us, and it was as if they wanted to touch us. They came so close. And it's an awesome experience if you've ever been so close to a giant animal of any sort like that. It, it's almost like they pull you right into them. It was, it was just very settling, very peaceful, very awesome. And they keep circling, and the baby seems to get excited. And so he starts breaching, he or she it breaches. And it's breaching, 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 and then calms down, and then goes under us. And, and of course, while this is all going on, Lee notices in the distance that the ship that looked like the same ship that was going around the, the corner of the mountains came back and was coming at us this time. It's really coming at us. But just to make sure, we take our shirts off again. <laughs> And we start screaming. And we don't stop until the boat comes up and it hauls up. And it hauls up at, at the legal distance they're supposed to say when there are whales. Of course, the whales are still with us. And they're still under us and going around us. And in a few moments, it took a little bit, but we didn't stop yelling for help and waving. And finally, the captain comes on the, the horn. And he says, we've contacted the Coast Guard. They'll be out to rescue you. They've ordered us to stay with you till they come. So we're here, and of course, Carl is quite frozen at this point and very panicked. And it's, it's a great relief to know that we're going to be rescued. And then we see in the distance, we see the Coast Guard ship leaving the harbor. And you can see it, it gets, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, it starts to veer and we see the side of it, and then it starts going back and shrinking and smaller and smaller into the harbor. And of course, at the same time that that's happening, we see the ship disappear. There's a helicopter that's now just come overhead. It's a Coast Guard helicopter, and it's swirling. And if you've ever been under a helicopter before, you cannot hear anything, you can't think anything. The wind is blowing, the water's already churning. And, and the copter's overhead. And the captain comes back on the, from, the, from the ship, and he said, seas are too dangerous. The Coast Guard can't rescue you. They've ordered us to take you on board. And they said, well, we'll haul up on the other side. And then he, and then he also added, like having conversation with us, um, we saw the whales. We thought you were kayakers. You were so low in the water. So then he says, he hauls up, he comes around to this side of us. And of course, the helicopter's swirling. And, and Carla, because she's probably hypothermic at this point and pretty petrified, is the first person to go to jump into the water to grab the lifesaver. And she goes straight down. And a guardsman now jumps out of the helicopter, jumps into the water, grabs her, pulls her up pulls her onto the ship, and she's, she's safely rescued. Now it's my turn to go. And at this point, I hadn't realized it. I look over, and I see the name of the ship. And I so happily jump and grab this lifesaver of the Pacific Whale Foundation. Aww. So I have been saved by the whales, and people who also protect them and love whales, too. 
And the lesson that I learned is this, that everything and everyone is connected. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. That's an outstanding adventure that I hope to only experience in this secondhand, lovely storytelling <laughs> manner. Next up, we have Kate Braun. Now, she's going to give you a totally different experience. She grew up in the Midwest, has lived in New England for the past 20 years, and throughout her career, she has taught acting classes at Boston Community College, led creative dramatics with the South Carolina school system, worked as an arts administrator in Kentucky, and directed theater productions in West Virginia. Trained as an actor, Kate has worked with various local theater companies as well, including Threshold Stage, Act One, New Hampshire Theater Project, Seacoast Rep, and York Readers Theater. She enjoys New England with all that it has to offer, but expects one day to return to her family roots in the Midwest where this story begins. Some of you I'm sure will be able to identify in a deeper way than others, but you will all be able to identify with a story titled, A Good Catholic Girl. <laughs> Hi. Well, I was born in the Midwest and raised to be a good Catholic girl, along with two brothers and a sister. Our parents gave us a very solid Catholic upbringing. We all attended Catholic grade school where we learned our catechism and where mom actually worked as school secretary. We attended Mass on Sundays and Holy Days, and Dad even took it a step further by attending 6 a.m. Mass every weekday morning before heading into work. We had a little brass crucifix hanging on the wall in our hallway, and I remember on Sunday evenings we'd line up in the hallway and kneel down and pray the rosary together as a family. Of course, we abstained from meat on Fridays, usually alternating between mom's tuna casserole and the church fish fry. My sister and I were both given the middle name of Mary, and after my holy confirmation in the fourth grade, I always knew when mom was losing her patience with me because I'd get the full treatment. Catherine Mary Margaret? <laughs> When I was in the fifth grade, had you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said, I want to be a nun. <laughs> to me, the nuns just seemed to have so much fun together. <laughs> yeah. there, there was a corridor that joined the school to the convent. And after the school day, when I was down in the office waiting for mom to finish up, I'd watch the nuns disappear down that corridor with big smiles on their faces. <laughs> and I just imagine them going off to cooking and eating and singing and, and praying together. And 
just seemed to me like they had one big slumber party night after night. I went to uh, a, a Catholic summer camps where we had sunrise services and sang Morning Has Broken to guitar accompaniments. And in high school, even though I went to a public high school, I was a member of the Catholic Youth Organization, or CYO, where we attended retreats. Uh, we join hands uh, in a circle and sing songs such as Let There Be Peace on Earth, often to a guitar accompaniment. <laughs> and even in my 20s, after I moved away from home, I still attended church regularly. I often sought out uh, cathedrals for their sheer majesty. I loved being in those spaces with all the holy statues and the stained glass windows and the smell of incense and candles burning. I loved sitting there and feeling part of something greater than myself, something historically transcendent. On the subject of boys, I was in high school and I remember hearing mom tell someone, she doesn't seem much interested in boys. And I remember thinking, I'm not? That was news to me. But you know, mom was perhaps a little more prescient than I gave her credit for because throughout my teens and into my 20s, I really didn't focus that much on dating. I had other things to do. But as Billy Joel once said, you Catholic girls start way too late. <laughs> I was well into my 30s when I met the love of my life. It was at a theater conference for educators. And he took one look at my name tag, and he rattled off a line from Shakespeare. Good morrow, Kate for that's your name I hear. <laughs> I thought, oh my, if anyone has the presence of mind to quote Shakespeare out of the blue, well, he's certainly worth my attention. His name was Court. And although it was his wit and charm that initially swept me off my feet, it was his gentle soul and kind nature that made my love for him grow deeper over time. We enjoyed about a three-year courtship, and then he proposed marriage. Unfortunately, he was not the husband that mom would have chosen for me. Not only was he a non-Catholic, he professed to being agnostic. And he even joked from time to time about being a druid. <laughs> also, he was substantially older than I, and not just once, but twice divorced. So getting married in the Catholic Church was out of the question. Instead, we planned for a, a small, unassuming ceremony shortly after Christmas. I was home for uh, the holidays, visiting Mom, when... Uh, as is customary, I decided to go to confession. Uh, I went into the confessional where the older priest was hearing confessions. And I don't know that I was expecting him to 
condone my marriage or bless my marriage, but I think part of me was expecting maybe for him to say something like, at least go in peace. Uh, I told him I was about to marry outside the Catholic Church, and he lit into me like you wouldn't believe. He read me the riot act, chastising me up and down for the pain that I was about to inflict on my family, and I had no choice but to call off the wedding immediately. I came out of that confessional, and I was totally shocked. Uh, not so much at what I had heard, but the manner in which it had been delivered. Never before had I been reprimanded so vehemently. And you know, usually when you come out of a confessional, you kneel down, you say a few Our Fathers, a couple Hail Marys, and you're good to go. <laughs> but I thought, you know, he didn't even give me a penance. I had no idea what to do next. I stood there dumbfounded. Then I looked up, and I saw that the younger priest was also hearing confessions across the church, across the way. <laughs> Suddenly, it occurred to me, I should get a second opinion. <laughs> So I marched over to the other side of the church. The little light was green. I went into the confessional, knelt down. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. My last confession was about five minutes ago. And I proceeded to tell him the same story I had given the older priest. After I finished, there was a slight pause. And then very softly came the words, first of all, Love is never wrong. I breathed such a huge sigh of relief. I thought, he gets it. Then he went on to say that I was about to make a very serious decision and that he'd like to discuss it with me outside the confessional. So the next day, I went to his office where we had a very polite discussion about love and marriage and how Christ's love is the foundation of marriage. And although he never condoned my upcoming marriage, he never said anything against the apparent love I felt for court. So in a few days' time, this now-lapsed Catholic was married to a lapsed Presbyterian by a Baptist minister in a Lutheran church. <laughs> I figured we'd cover as many bases as we could. Uh, the ceremony was attended, even though they didn't agree with my choice. It was attended by both my mother and my younger brother. That wedding marked my departure from the Catholic Church, which in turn afforded me the freedom to explore other religious faiths over the years. And I would like to think that as a result, my own sense of spirituality has become more expansive and inclusive as a result. Of course, I am grateful to my parents for giving us such a solid faith-based upbringing because it did serve us well. By the time I was 24, my family had lost my older brother, my sister, and my father. 
And I have no doubt that it was our Catholic faith that got us through each of those losses. Mom, of course, remained a devout Catholic throughout her life. And I'm sorry that she worried over my eternal salvation. But she also lived by the golden rule. I was pleasantly surprised when uh, I went home for a visit one time and I saw that she had framed a greeting card that I had sent her. She had it framed and hanging on the wall right alongside the little brass crucifix that we had prayed to as a family. The card quoted the Dalai Lama of Tibet. It said very simply, my true religion is kindness. Isn't that what it's all about? Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Brought back lots of memories. <laughs> yeah, there is something about that Catholic upbringing that there's stick-to-itiveness. Part of it good. Andy David Davis comes up next. He lives in the White Mountains where he and his wife co-direct the World Fellowship Center, a family camp and retreat center devoted to peace and social justice. He performs as a storyteller whenever the opportunity arises to tell multicultural folk tales, tall tales, shaggy dog stories, and the occasional personal tale. Like this one, titled, A Tale of Two Augusts. Andy? Thanks, David. Thanks, Pat. Hi, everybody. Looking back, I'm not sure if the fateful moment was when I called him an asshole or when he stuck his thumbs in the middle of my chest and started pushing me backward down the hill. But let me back up for a moment. Back in the days when I probably should have been in college and sometimes was, <laughs> During the summers, my friends and I would join the annual migration of young people to the coast to work in beach towns for the summer. Our choice was Agunquit, Maine, that charming hamlet perched on three miles of unbroken white sand on the edge of the uncaged Atlantic. <laughs> Agangwit was and is a haven for all kinds of sea and sun-worshipping people of all stripes. Families, French Canadians, French Canadian families, <laughs> a thriving, well-established gay community, and us the young people with raging libidos who formed the backbone of the summer workforce. <laughs> the ringleader of our little band was Norm, who was charismatic and just a little bit abusive of the power he had over people. He was the only one of us who got to have a first name. The rest of us were Davis, Walker, Alvarez, 
you get the idea. Oh, the women we hung out with got to have first names too, but the only one you need to know about is Bobby. Bobby was waitressing that summer at Einstein's restaurant in the summer of town and going out with Norm, who treated her like a queen some of the time and like no kind of royalty the rest. The truth is, all of us guys were at least a little bit in love with Bobby because she was kind, generous-hearted, and optimistically believed that this sunburned band of heirs to the patriarchy could somehow become better than we were. She was kind of like a den mother for wolves. <laughs> that summer, we rented a slightly run-down, yellow-clabbered house just south of the center of town that quickly became known for high-volume socializing long into the night. It was the sort of house that a party was never really over until the police came. <laughs> so we partied every night at the Yellow House, but we liked to branch out a bit. So we were excited when we found out early that August that a new after-hours club had opened just over the line in York to take advantage of that town's more liberal laws about how late into the evening you could serve alcohol. And in sort of a thumbing of the nose to their neighbor to the north, they called themselves, Good night, Agunquit. <laughs> so we heard that they were doing really well, that there were mobs of young people our age every night, so much so that they hired off-duty police officers to do crowd control. Now, we had a cordially conflictive relationship with our Agunquit Police Department, but these would have been York cops. We didn't know them at all. So we decided one evening to finally get around to checking out Goodnight Agunquit, and we pre-functioned at Bobby's apartment over <laughs> Einstein's restaurant, and then we headed down the road to Goodnight Agunquit. We were all dressed in our summer clubbing best. I was in a red and white button-down Oxford shirt and running shorts and my white tennis shoes that spilled beach sand wherever I went. And I had stopped cutting my hair and shaving my mustache, and I drew a razor across my chin about once a week. I looked kind of like a preppy gone bad. <laughs> So we got to the sh driveway that cut sharply up and um, on the right. And then where it leveled out, uh, we, we saw that there was quite a crowd waiting to get in the door. And, but Norm and Walker immediately saw one of the cops and began verbally abusing him. Not very intelligently. And he kind of growled and glowered at them and, and at us, and we just walked by and got in line. And of course, we were being carded to get in, and each time somebody got by the person who was checking IDs, 
the door opened and there was a flash of the disco lights and there was pulsating music and the anticipation level was rising. And uh, finally we got to the front of the line and Norm and Bobby got carded and went in. And then Walker and Alvarez got carded and the door opened and they went in. And then it was my turn. And though I was just 21, I realized that I had left my wallet with my ID back at Bobby's place. And the kid at the door said, sorry, man, if you don't have an ID, I can't let you in. And I said I understood, and I turned to go. And the cop that, walk, uh, that Norman Walker had had words with came running up and said, yeah, if you don't have an ID, get the hell out of here. So I called him the name of the aforementioned puckered hidden body part and <laughs> brushed by him and immediately felt his hand on my shoulder and he spun me around and began pushing me. And I had my authority issues and a grenade of rage went off in my head and I popped him in the chin and then said, oh my God, what have I done? I'm going to die. And the only thing, I was making this up as I went along, the only thing I could think of to do was to duck under his swinging arms and grab him around the waist and throw him up against a car. Which lasted as long as it took his buddy to find out what was going and get over there and grab me by the hair in the seat of the pants and bounce me over the gravel and throw me in the squad car. So a couple hours later, Bobby, the patient den mother, bailed me out with some of her boss, Steve Einstein's money. And a couple of months later, I went to trial and it got bargained down to simple assault. I got convicted, sentenced to 30 days, all but three suspended. But the craziest thing was, as I stood there, I said, but your honor, I'm planning to travel in France. I already have my ticket. No. And he let me serve my time after I got back. <laughs> now, I used to tell this story a lot, usually to young white guys like myself with undeveloped frontal lobes to show what a badass I was. But eventually I grew up a little bit, maybe. I stopped telling the story. Maybe it was just I had other stories I wanted to tell. But the years rolled by, and another August came along. Uh, it was August of 2014. I found myself standing in a circle with hands joined with about 100 other people. It was a vigil for Michael Brown, the young unarmed black man who had been shot dead the day before in Ferguson, Missouri for expressing his rage to a white police officer. And that afternoon I told the story again, but it had changed. It had become the story of an unbelievably lucky young white kid who was mind-bogglingly clueless about his own privilege, about a white kid who through no virtue of his own, fate and circumstance allowed to survive his youthful expressions of rage 
grow up, find love, have a daughter, and watch her grow up too. Blind fate and random circumstance. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. That's a really good story for us to contemplate during our intermission of about 10 minutes or so. So just go stretch. I think there might be snacks out there. Are there snacks? Okay. Um, and um, I guess that uh, you'll be free to stretch. I'm, we didn't actually rehearse this part of the uh, intermission announcement. You know, um, looks like they're getting ready. Is that right, Ken? Ken will take care of you. Is that right, Ken? Okay. So we'll be back in 10 minutes. There we go. There's some music. It's all working out. See you soon. Three more good stories. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Now, my cue was to uh, walk out when the music went down, and I got distracted. <laughs> so uh, we are ready to begin again. Apparently, we've been ready for a few seconds. <laughs> To start off, our first set is going to be Tom Ostberg. He came to storytelling by listening to his dad's fisherman friends. When one story ended, it led to another and another that just drew him in. That's what he loves most about telling stories, their ability to transport us into the lives of others while bringing us all together. A native of New Hampshire, Tom has hiked, camped, and canoed around the state for years when his family was always the audience to hearing his tales of adventure. But now, with his five kids grown up and gone at their suggestion, <laughs> Tom has started sharing his stories with others. Even while sitting at his desk as a robotics programmer. Now, this is something that I got that particular part um, as part of the bio a couple of months ago. What? Newsflash, as of last Friday at 11 o'clock, Tom is now retired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I highly recommend it. I wish that I could uh, just control my free time a little bit better to be creative, but Tom expects that he can do that uh, with lots of time to daydream about getting lost in the great North Canoe Trails where he just might discover another story like this one titled, A Tight, Dark Spot. <laughs> I arrived in West Virginia College when I was a long-haired freshman in the early 70s, and I was indestructible, so I thought. And I wanted to be a part of the Outdoor Adventure Club. They had two rules, though. One, you had to have your own carbide headlamp. Two, you had to not be afraid of the dark. They took us, 19-year-olds, across an open field as a shakedown hike. We walked across the Golden Fall Field, and, and we pushed through the the ferns and the cold rocks into a dark cave that they're bringing us into. 
You could see that the freshmen, they paired off in this huge cavern with, with tons of earth and rock overhead. They were pairing off and looking around, and the older ones were watching to see who'd freak out from claustrophobia. The dark shadows would just eat your light away. You couldn't even see in them. I was just leaning against the wall because I was fearless, and I wanted to see how I could prove myself. I could feel a breeze suddenly on my ankles. And kneeling down, I found a passageway nobody had seen. So I got down and I started crawling in 10 feet and 20 feet. And I could smell that there was like a limestoney uh, dampness to the air that was probably calcium. And it would be probably a great find. A little farther in, there was a huge V that interrupted the passage above like a canyon. But we had practiced for this. We had practiced in the gym. You, you put yourself in a, in, a, in a kind of a human wedge. You put your feet against one wall, and your back and your hands against the other wall, and you're kind of wedge. And I could see across there was a shelf, only about 20 feet. And so I had to shimmy across without looking down into the abyss. And, and I'm shimmying across slowly, shimmying across, shimmying across. And, and all of a sudden, my right foot slips. And, and, and I'm looking up at this thing that distracted me. There was a black spot on the ceiling. And I'm cursing those people who, who graffiti the beautiful limestone caves. And I cursed myself for not telling anybody where I was going. But I was almost there, so I pulled myself up onto the shelf. And sure enough, around the corner, the tunnel went farther. And there was this huge silo-shaped thing with a stalactite and a stalagmite that met in the middle. It went up story after story with little scalloped pools on it that reflected my headlamp and droplets of water that probably hung there for a hundred years, leaving little crystal feathers on it. I walked around this column that just went up and up and I knew I had bragging rights, big bragging rights. So I got back up on the shelf and I, I slid carefully into the human wedge in the crack above the abyss. And it seemed harder. You know, it, it seemed like maybe my feet were wet or it's, I was tired, but it was, something was different. And, and I'm shimming across, shimming across, and, and suddenly I realize my, foot, my, leg, my, my left arm is up against the wall, not the tunnel that I came in on. And I looked down into the abyss and the tunnel I came in on is six feet below me. I had come off the shelf and didn't realize I was higher. So I'd come in higher. So now I had to slowly, carefully slide down to the tunnel. And then it occurred to me I was higher and I was up against the ceiling and I looked up and, and there was the black spot. And the black spot was actually huge. It was like the size of a manhole cover. And, and it didn't look right. And I felt like something was looking at me. <laughs> and I wanted to get away from it. So I slid my right foot down and then my left foot and my right hand and my left hand and I, I slid four inches. And then I slid my right foot and my left foot and my right hand and my left hand and I slid four inches and I, I looked up and I, I thought it looked thicker 
than it did before. So I, I had to get away. So I slid my right foot and my left foot and my right hand and my left hand, and I, I slid four inches, and I looked up, and it seemed like it was bowl-shaped in the middle, and I hadn't noticed that. So I slid my right foot and my left foot and my right hand and my left hand, and I slid down four inches. I looked up, and it was like a ball in the middle now. It was changing. And my right foot and my left foot and my right hand and my left hand, and I slid down, and it was growing. It was actually getting bigger in the middle. And my right foot and my left foot and my left hand, and my hand. I slid down four inches, and, and it was undulating now. It was actually moving. It was alive. Something was there. My right foot and my left foot and my left hand. I slid down four more inches, and then I realized what it was. A small spider ran from the edge to the middle. The heat from my breath and, and my lamp were waking up billions of cave spiders that had been hibernating. They were standing on one another's bodies and they were getting bigger and bigger. And it was angry and they were having trouble staying attached and it was getting bigger. And I'm sliding down farther and farther and I'm trying to keep an eye on it and now it's kind of forming a drip of angry spiders. And I'm tilting my head and sliding, trying to get down. And then all of a sudden it hits my head and they run down my face and down my arms and down my back. And I clamp my mouth and I'm screaming inside my head and my eyes. And all I see is red. And, and finally I throw myself through the tunnel and run out through the freshmen screaming and throw myself out of the tunnel. <sighs> and roll down the front. To this day... <laughs> I, I still go on adventures. I, I have stared down bears fearlessly and caught rattlesnakes and moved them out of trails, ways. But at home, at home, those little terrifying spiders, my wife has to deal with them. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Tom. That's going to set us up for Halloween. <laughs> All right. On a different note, we are going to hear from Tina Charpentier. Uh, she's lived in the Seacoast area for most of her life and currently resides in Dover, New Hampshire. Tina grew up on a small family farm in Kittery Point, where she was and still is fascinated with eggs and cocoons. She joined the New Hampshire Air National Guard Communications Unit at Pease in 1982 and spent a total of 21 years with them. Her story takes place in Saudi Arabia, where she was deployed in 1992. It is titled, The Egg. <laughs> So yes, back in 1992, I was in the Air Force and I was riding with my buddies, Doug and Chauncey to Al-Khars, Saudi Arabia, and we saw some camels off in the desert, so we pulled over to check them out, you know, and I slowly creeped up to some of them, but they kept moving away like they were shy or something, but that's when I found the egg, just rolling around. It was about the size of a ping pong ball. It was brown. We thought, let's keep it and see if something might hatch, right? You ever do that? 
Oh, I always have. Kept a cocoon or something. I grew up on a small farm, and I learned enough about bugs to basically get me through school. You know, I wrote research papers and did speeches about them and science fair projects, you name it. I mean, even to this day, I'm kind of hooked on monarch butterflies, right? I mean, it looks like a madman mows our lawn because we go around our milkweed to give them some habitat. <laughs> and I do go out and get leaves sometimes with the caterpillars on them and keep them and try to give them a leg up. And boy, I am humbled when I have one of those beauties on my finger that will let it go. Just awesome. But don't for a minute think that I like all bugs and insects. I mean, then there's mosquitoes and black flies and ticks. When I get a tick on me, I get what I call the tick willies for like days, right? I mean, it could be the hair and you go, it's something right there, there's got to be something right there. <laughs> but then there are lightning bugs too, you know? I mean, they're so awesome. Just amazing, the diversity. You could write papers all day if you need to. <laughs> so that day we went on to Alcarge, and our task was to remove an antenna from the cement building to put it over at a tent where they needed it. And uh, it had a, a, a mast of like four foot poles that you might see on a table umbrella. And so there were multiple, it was like 40 feet tall or something. And, uh, but on that cement roof, there was no way to anchor that down. So it had been put in an ammo box that was filled with sand and then a bunch of sandbags around it to kind of hold it in place. And it also had four supporting wires that were also anchored down with sandbags to kind of hold it in place. And uh, so my buddies, Doug and Chauncey, they were, well, Doug and Chauncey. So Chauncey, he was really, he was smart and really daring and kind of, he was brave, you know. And Doug was, Doug, well, Doug was Doug. He was smart too and funny guy, but he was so sick of the military. He was just really waiting for his enlistment to be over. I mean, he just had had it with all this stuff. He, first of all, he wasn't an outdoorsy guy at all. He didn't like bugs or creepy crawly things. And he hated heights. We were radio maintenance technicians. <laughs> you know, we run into this stuff every day in our jobs. <laughs> but I can't understand his squeamishness over there, though. I mean, they have spiders as big as your hand, right? One of the security ops teams found one and kept it, and they named it Fred. It's awful. It's creepy. So I moved one of the sandbags on, on my guy wire, and some lizards run out over to where the mast was, right? So then I lifted another one, and some more lizards ran over to where Doug was working. So I said, hey, Doug, look out. There's some lizards in that pile now. And he had just stood up, right, with a couple of sandbags, and... Uh, there was a lizard right, right here on, on his sandbag. And I said, hey, Doug, look out, there's a lizard right there. And just then, he was like eye to eye with it. <laughs> it was like an E.T. moment, right? I, he screamed, I swear the lizard screamed. He chucks his sandbags and everything goes flying and all this. It only happens to Doug. It does, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> so then we had to go and install this thing over in a tent that had been there quite a while. And it's one of those big tents, right, with the flaps on the side. And it had sandbags lining that up, too, to hold it down. So we had to move one of those to get an antenna wire up under there. And we flipped for who was going to do that, because that's like <laughs> creepy crawl of heaven, right? <laughs> but Chauncey ended up doing it. And there was nothing there, because, of course, he would have been brave about it, right? 
But for me, sometimes it's the humans that are the creepy things. I mean, really, so like in this particular case, we were installing this for the EOD team. And they're the explosive ordnance destruction guys. Like, uh, I mean, I highly respect them and they have a really important job and their mission's really critical, but I find that they're like edgy and suspicious and everything all the time. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe they're like that and it makes them really good at their job or maybe that's their job taking a toll on them, I don't know. But it's, it's, they tried to show us like some of the really cool stuff that they'd collected up and I tried to act interested, but explosives and bombs and guns are really not my thing. I find that kind of creepy. So. When we finally got back to Ascon Village where we lived, our compound, we went up to the guy's roof. Now their roof at their flat was kind of a hangout, right? We had a cabana type set up there. We put some camouflage up, you know, for shade. And we got some of those old announcement speakers like you might see on a MASH episode. And we hooked those up to an old stereo somebody had abandoned. And we strung some Christmas lights and stuff. And now all in all, it was a pretty nice hangout, really. I mean, boredom was a challenge for us over there, so we had to make the best we could. I mean, our work was hard. It was hot and dry and dusty, and all of that is very hazardous to equipment, so we were always, always busy. But that was good, because when we weren't working, there really wasn't anything to do. But now we had an egg. <laughs> so we put our egg in a jar, and we poked holes in the top of it, you know, and I did that as a kid, too. Uh, but one time when we woke up, there was like a couple hundred little tiny praying mantises in the house because they'd fit through the holes I'd poked in there. <laughs> My mother wasn't very happy with that. But with this new project, I wasn't taking any chances. It could be like that, right? So we're going to put the jar with the egg in it with the holes poked in the top on the roof. Because, I mean, this could be a spider egg. Right? It could be an insect thing, or it could be a snake or a lizard or a bird for that matter. We didn't know. I mean, it was 1992, pre-internet, right? We couldn't look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, it, 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 there is a library there, but in Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of restrictions on women, and that's one of them, is that I couldn't go in the library. And the guys wouldn't go for me, and so they're like, Oh, I'd probably all be in Arabic anyway, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, well, we didn't look it up. But we checked on it every day. And uh, it didn't grow or change or move. It didn't do anything. But it was something to look forward to every day and something to talk about. Like I said, boredom, right? <laughs> but you know what? We had a wreck trip that went to the zoo. It went, I think, like every two weeks or something, but you had to sign up on a list and get chosen randomly from this list. And the zoo was run by a guy, he actually developed, it was fairly new then, by a guy named Richard Bush of the uh, Bush family from the Bush Gardens in here in Florida. And uh, over there in Saudi Arabia, went, uh, the weekends were Thursday and Friday, and where Friday was kind of a down day for them, sort of like our Sundays used to be. And so the zoo was closed on Fridays. So he'd have a trip of troops come over on Fridays. Well, I won the lottery once. I got to go to the zoo. And uh, when I went anywhere not in, on duty and not in military uniform, I did have to wear an abaya and scarf. And that day was no exception, right? It's that black gown-like covering and everything. But when I got inside, 
with the rest of the group, Richard said, you know what? So just us in here, the place is closed. You can take that off for the day, which was really a pretty special thing. It kind of seems silly now, but it was really kind of a big deal to be out and about. But, but so was the tour. He actually gave a personal tour of the zoo to us, which was really amazing. And one of the things he did, for example, was uh, he demonstrated a rattler strike. Right? He had a, he had a worker put an inflated balloon down into the rattler cage, and like suddenly the balloon pops. You never saw the snake move. So one of the guys that was on the trip with us, he had one of those video cameras, you remember, that had the actual VHS tape right in it. And he played that back. He had been recording that, played it back in slow motion, and you still never saw that snake move. Amazing, amazing thing. But going through this whole thing at the zoo, I was thinking, darn it, I should have brought that egg with me. These people might know what it is, right? But I didn't, so there we were. Anyways, the zoo is awesome. So then time dragged on after that. I mean, just drags on. Work and check the egg and work and check the egg. <laughs> <laughs> but there was still nothing happening, right? So curiosity was actually starting to get to us, and we were all starting to get ready to leave. If we were lucky, we'd be home by Christmas. So we decided collectively to break it, to see what was inside. We'd had it a long time. And I don't like killing anything. I don't, I'm still one to take a spider outside and heave it and give it a, a chance. But with the curiosity and the vote was to break it, with Doug and Chauncey there watching and a bunch of the other guys too, actually, it became a popular egg. <laughs> uh, and it was mine, so I had to do it. I took it out of the jar and I, I still carefully set it down on the roof. Uh, and still feeling pretty bad about it, I gently stepped on it. And it didn't do anything. It didn't budge, it didn't do anything. So I stepped harder, and it still didn't do anything. It didn't crack, it didn't do anything. So finally I gave it a real blow with my heel of my boot, right? And it broke. So I picked it up, the pieces, and we all gathered around real close to it, and. We looked at each other, and we're looking at this egg, and it had grass in it. I mean, it turned out it was a piece of camel poop that had been rolling around in the desert. <laughs> it had been rounded. <laughs> kind of like sea glass, right? I mean, yeah. Thankfully, I didn't take that to the zoo, you know. <laughs> I do love a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Last up, we have Martha Reed Johnson. She grew up in Georgetown, Massachusetts, and after 35 years of living south of Mason-Dixon line, let me try that again. After 35 years of living south of the Mason-Dixon line, has finally returned home. In addition to being caretaker for her 85-year-old mother and the 200-year-old family home, she is a counselor and behavior specialist working in public education and a storyteller slash listener everywhere and always. Martha knows it's stories that connect us. 
And it is stories that help us to know that we are more alike than different. Her story is titled, It's Never Too Late. Martha. <laughs> I'm kind of sad I'm the last one because they've been such great stories today. <laughs> All right. Iris Sinclair sat at the table surrounded by his family. The lights from candles from his birthday cake lit up the room. He took a deep breath and blew them all out. And then he announced to his family, I've applied to Harvard Medical School. There was silence at the table, and everyone stared at him. And then the whispering began. What did he say? Did, did he say Harvard Medical School? What? And then a little voice, 10-year-old Sophia, spoke up and said, Papa, aren't you too old for medical school? <laughs> Ira was 85. <laughs> he looked at his granddaughter, and he said, you're never too old. And then he explained to Sophia that he had always wanted to be a doctor since he was a small boy living in Cambridge. He would walk through the campus and he dreamed of being Dr. Sinclair. But life had other plans for him and he never made it. So he looked at Sophia and he said, I've applied. It's not too late. And everyone just kind of said, okay, pop, just do whatever you want. And no one spoke of it again after the birthday party. <clears throat> Months went by, and the family gathered for Thanksgiving. Ira was again seated at the head of the table. The turkey had been carved. The bellies were full. At the end of the meal, he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a letter with a Harvard Medical School logo on it and said, I've been accepted. <laughs> Again, there was silence at the table, and everyone stared at him. And his son grabbed the letter from his hand and said, What is, dear Iris Sinclair, congratulations. You have been accepted to Harvard Medical School Anatomical Gifts Program. <laughs> Anatom-pop? And Iris said, I'll get there one way or the other. <laughs> Well, before the year was over, Ira got there. I think he might have enjoyed it more had he gotten there earlier. <laughs> I heard Ira's story from his granddaughter, Sophia, in 2014. I was at Tufts University attending a memorial service that was being held for the family members of that year's body donors. And Sophia was a first-year medical student. She shared the story of how that day at the table, listening to her grandfather's story, had planted the seed in her to be a doctor. And she shared that with all of the families. There were 64 body donors that year. After the memorial service was over, all the family members were invited to go into a banquet hall and have lunch with the other families and with the students. And as we walked into the room, the tables and the walls were filled with photographs and photo albums and just memories of all those body donors. We had been asked to send something in. 
And so as we walked in that room, I looked around at the walls and the tables and saw all those dreams. And I sat down at the table, number 33 table, with my mother and my sister and my brothers. And as we sat down at our table, there were six chairs that were empty. And after a little while, the six medical students that had worked on my father's body came and sat down with us. I got to admit, I was pretty creeped out at first. <laughs> But Sophia was one of those students. And as we began to have lunch and share our stories and talked about where they wanted to practice medicine, what kind of dreams they had, they asked us questions about my dad. And I started to think, wow. My dad went to Tufts University and studied chemistry. And he became an industrial chemist for DuPont. But after a few years, he decided that was not for him. And he went back to school and became a teacher. Got his master's degree and his doctorate degree, and then he became a teacher of teachers. And my father was one of those people who was a teacher 24-7, not just eight to four. He loved to teach, had a passion for it. And as I sat there listening to those students sharing their stories and sharing all that they had learned, I thought, wow, my dad continued to teach long after his last breath. And then I looked at Sophia, and I thought, wow, she knew at 10 years old what she wanted to be. And I thought, what did I want to be when I was 10? And then I remembered, I wanted to be a professional wrestler. <laughs> and I announced this to my family, and, and everyone heard it. And, and, and after dinner, when I had announced that at 10 years old, my oldest brother pulled me aside and he said, Marty, that's ridiculous. <laughs> You're not going to be a professional wrestler. He said, you got to do something in your life that you love, that you're good at. He said, I know. He said, Marty, be a writer. Write down all those silly little stories you're always telling us. And I, I thought about that all that night. And the next day, my father presented me with my very first special journal and a pen. And he said, Marty, write your stories. And so I started writing. I filled notebook after notebook, journal after journal, full of stories. And when I got to be a teenager, I started reading Irma Bombeck. <laughs> she was in the paper and she'd write funny stories. She wrote books like, you know, The Grass is Greener Over the Septic Tank. And I decided I was going to be Irma Bombeck when I grew up. And I kept writing. And I went to college and I decided I was going to major in creative writing and, and I was going to be a writer. And then I had to take some kind of placement test. And they assigned me to a remedial English writing class. <laughs> and every Thursday afternoon, I had to show up to Professor Doom's office <laughs> and present my writing for the week. And she would whip out her red flare pen and tear it apart. And every week, I left a little more deflated week after week. And at the end of the sem semester, I put my pen down, changed my major, stopped writing. I kept telling my stupid little stories wherever anybody would listen. And eventually I, I recorded a CD and it was many, many years after college. And my father got a hold of the CD and he heard it. And he said, Marty, come on, write your stories. I said, Dad, I haven't written in 25 years. He said, just write. 
And so he challenged me, as my father would often do. He said, just try, just write a story every week. Even if it's terrible, write a story. So I took him up on his challenge. And I lived a thousand miles away from my father. So I started a blog so that when I would post the story, my dad could read it. And every Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, I had a story posted <coughs> for 60 weeks in a row. And I knew my dad was at the other end of cyber world reading my stories. About halfway through this 60-week experience, I was contacted by a small newspaper in Laurenburg, North Carolina. And they said, can we publish your stories in our newspaper? I said, sure, and didn't think anything about it until a couple months later, this big package arrived, this manila envelope, and I opened it up, and there were all these newspaper clippings of my stories, with a little tiny little postage stamp picture of me with a byline by Martha Reed Johnson, and I thought, maybe I will be Irma someday. <laughs> and then, in 2013, my dad passed away. And my favorite audience at the end of the cyber world wasn't there to read my stories. And I stopped writing. And as I sat there at the table with those medical students, I was looking at Sophia, who knew at 10 years old what she wanted to be. And I thought about my dad, who didn't start out knowing what he wanted to be, but he found his passion and lived it beyond his last breath. And then I thought of Ira. And I thought, it's never too late. <laughs> Dream on. <laughs> Thanks to all of you for joining us this afternoon for our stories. Um, we were really honored to be here again on the West End Studio Theater stage with the Artist Collab Collaborative Theater of New England. And we just are so grateful to Stephanie Voss Nugent for having us for the fourth year in a row. Thank you so much, Stephanie. So all of tonight's tellers over the past 12 months at one point or another were on our show, True Tales Live. So we want you to know about the show, which happens the last Tuesday of most months. We take part of the summer off in December um, at po Portsmouth Public Media TV, which is at 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth. And you're all invited. Um, it's 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Um, we have about 40 seats, first come, first serve. It does fill up sometimes, we're happy to say. But it is free and open to all, and our next show is October 30th. So we'd love to see you. You can also watch it, if you don't want to make it all the way down there, on PPM TV, that's channel 98. Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. on Portsmouth Cable Access. Or you can watch it online. PPM TV has a YouTube channel, so you go on to YouTube and look for PPM TV True Tales Live and all of our shows from the, um, that happen there will be available for you. Check out. Now, um, if you want to join us on the other side and tell us a story, we would love to have that happen. We've just released our 2019 themes and the dates of the shows. And if you are ready to go 
then great. Just contact us and we'll get you scheduled. If you want some help with your story, like we've said, we have monthly workshops and otherwise work with people who want to do this. Our storytelling workshops are the first Tuesday of most months, 7.30 to 9, also at PPM TV at 280, Ports, uh, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth. Pat, myself, and David run those. They're free and open to all, and we would love to see you. There is information in your program, and also our themes, a uh, list of our themes are out on the, um, by the clipboard that you can sign up to get on our email list as well. So those are a number of ways for you to stay connected with us, and we would love for you to do so. So, all that said, let's take another moment to thank tonight's amazing storytellers. Come on in, Susan Lang, Kate Braun, Andy Davis, Tom Osberg, <laughs> Tina Sharpentier, and Martha Reed Johnson. <laughs>